Our scripture this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Let's hear God's word. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed as with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. I learned to play and love baseball from my dad. It started out with just the two of us throwing a ball back and forth in the backyard. We'd practice how to swing a, bag, a bat, you know, shag some fly balls and run the bases, and then it expanded to playing catch with my dad and my older brother. My dad had this old-fashioned baseball glove that looked like an overinflated Mickey Mouse hand. I mean, it was all puffy and swollen like your hand had been stung by a bee. As I grew a little older, I got to join the neighborhood boys who assembled to play pickup games in the vacant lot down the street or at the 95th Street Elementary School in Milwaukee, where I was born. We brought our own balls and bats and gloves, and we used any stray pieces of wood or stomp-flat soda cans for the bases, at first, I was the new kid, you know, the smallest kid, the last one picked for the team, usually reluctantly by my older brother, who often captained one of the teams. But that was okay, because I was in the game. I was part of the gang, and I got my time at the plate like everybody else. There was no t-ball back then, no coaches, no uniforms, no batting helmets or umpires. Kids just played together without adult interference. And so we called our own balls and strikes. We argued over whether or not the runner was safe at first. We figured it out on our own, and we loved it. At some point, though, I stopped playing baseball. I stopped playing the game that I loved around seventh grade because by that time we were into rec baseball with leagues and shirts and hats and coaches and tryouts and cuts, and I wasn't a great hitter. Those fastballs were getting faster, and I didn't like the sound of one whizzing past my ear. And people, people started yelling at us when we played, mostly other parents telling us what to do and how to do it. It wasn't much fun anymore, so I stopped, which is a shame because I really did love playing baseball. Looking back on it, what I learned in seventh grade was that it was who you were playing with that made baseball fun. It was the relationships, the buddies, the gang. It takes a team to play baseball. I mean, I could still play catch every once in a while with a friend, but to really play the game, you've got to have a team. You can't play catch alone for very long. Just toss the ball up and catch it in your mitt. I mean, that gets old in a hurry. Uh, you can throw a ball up and take a swing at it with your bat, but then you've got to go chase your own balls. I mean, you could go to a batting cage, hit some balls off a pitching machine, but, but that's not the game. To really play the game, you need a team. That's the only way baseball is fun. So I went from being a participant to being a spectator. I mean, you can still enjoy the game of baseball as a spectator, but it's not the same. 
Not the same as scooping a ball up out of the dirt and chucking it to first base for an out and that satisfying smacking sound when the ball hits the center of the glove. Being a spectator, it's not the same as the, the feeling that, that, that wooden bat vibrate in your hands when you hit the ball on the sweet spot and you see it sail right over the head of the shortstop. And I know I'm not alone in that transition from player to spectator because today I think it's like about 98% of kids who start out playing the game of baseball drop out by the time they're 13 years old. Tremendous drop off and there's something sad about that because you can't play baseball alone. I feel a similar sadness when I hear people tell me that they don't need the church in order to be a Christian. Have you heard people say that or maybe you've said it or thought it? I don't need the church in order to be a Christian. I don't need the church in order to worship God or serve him. Because what that says to me is that at some point the person has moved from being a participant to being a spectator. That this something that once maybe that they loved has lost its appeal. They've lost that love for the game. Something happened so that they no longer know what it's like to really play the game. Because being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, it's a team sport. To try and be a Christian by yourself is an awful lot like trying to play baseball on your own. It doesn't work very well, and it's not much fun. And what this also says to me is that the person, this person has a fundamental misunderstanding about the Christian faith and what the church is all about. When people say they don't need the church to be a Christian, it usually means they think of the church in these two ways. First, that the church is a building. A building that you go to where religious things happen. The church is the physical structure, the room with the chairs or the uncomfortable pews. It's decorated with symbols like a cross or maybe it has some stained glass in the window. They don't need that physical place to worship or serve God. And if that were an accurate or sole definition of the word church, well then I would have to agree with them. You, you don't need a building in order to worship and serve God. The Bible never refers to the church as a building. Never. In the Bible, the church is always people. People. There were no church buildings until some 200 years or so after the launch of the church in 33 AD. Christians met in homes or out in the open. There were no buildings. That only came later. And unfortunately, an undue emphasis was placed on building and preserving and maintaining the structure as a substitute for the real mission of the church. The church is not a building. The church is a body. The church is people. And that's why we often say you don't go to church, you are the church. The church building, that's just a convenient place to carry out the mission, the functions of, of the people who are serving Christ. The building is just a tool to aid people in doing what God has called them to do as his church. A place to gather and to learn and to worship and to serve and encourage. Uh, it's more like a, like a home base, a headquarters from which, from which people go out and serve the world. It's not the arena where the, where the game takes place. It's a launching pad. When we end this worship service and people start to exit, we should have a big sign that says, The church has left the building. So I'm going to say something that I bet you never thought you'd hear a pastor say. I would encourage you not to go to church. I would encourage you not to go to church. 
be the church. Be the church because the church is and has always been people. The second misconception that people often have is that the church is an institution that you join. It's like a club that you join. And what they've experienced is an institution that's very imperfect. An institution that runs more like a government program than than a life-giving kind of relational team. An institution that may actually stifle a person's search to know and serve Jesus Christ because, hey, you start asking too many questions. An institution that has somehow left a person feeling disappointed or in some way they were hurt by members of the institution. They see the church as purely a human construction that sets up a lot of rules and regulations and most of them seem to be arbitrary or oppressive or or even contrary to the things that Jesus actually taught. The church is an institution that's concerned more about power and control, about money and ego. And if that's true, if that's truly what the church is, then I can tell you personally, I wouldn't want to have any part of it. If that's been a person's only experience of church, then quite frankly, I wouldn't blame them for staying home. The real church of Jesus Christ is not a building, and it is not an institution. I'm excited to be a part of this thing created by Jesus called the church, his body. And I believe it's essential for every growing Christian to find his or her place within the body of Christ so that their faith can thrive, that they can find a kind of relationships that makes life worth living, so that they can find their place of serving, so that they can rediscover the joy of being on God's team. In our current message series, we are exploring the core values that make us who we are as a local church. And one of these core values is that we believe in the absolute importance of the church as an an accountable community. Accountable community. The church is an accountable community of committed people, committed to Jesus Christ and therefore committed to each other. When you look at what Jesus was doing in the Gospels, you see he did a variety of different things. He preached to the masses, he taught on a hillside, he healed the sick sometimes in public and sometimes in private. He had conflict with the Pharisees. But he also went up to a bunch of very different people and specifically said to them, follow me. Follow me. He invited certain people to be in his inner circle, to be his disciples. You could almost say that he was like a coach recruiting people to join his team. That's what he was doing. He was building his team. And over and over again, he told them that there was to be one quality that he wanted to characterize his team. One major characteristic that he wanted his team to be known for. And that was love. Love. He wanted them to love each other in such a way that the world would have to sit up and take notice. John 13, 34. While Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples the night he was arrested, right after he had taken on the role of the servant, had knelt down and washed each one of their feet, he said this, A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus set the example for what he wanted his followers to be by by serving them, by sacrificing his life for them. By loving them, he set the example for how he wanted them to go through life. 
not as isolated individuals, but as a united team knit together by a common purpose and a shared passion. Knit together by the love of Jesus. A company of the committed, an incendiary fellowship, a band of brothers, a circle of sisters who generally took an interest in each other's lives and did more than just politely nod to each other once a week during the coffee hour. They were to replicate with each other the same kind of sacrificial love that Jesus gave to each one of them, a new kind of community that the outside world had never seen, a love for each other that, that even went beyond their own families, their tribes, their skin color, their education, their economics, their cultural status. It was a bold commitment to share life together as one body as they jointly followed Jesus Christ as their head. That was Jesus' vision for his team. He calls this the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Well, then what was the old commandment? The old commandment was the one that he gave in response to the question of what was the greatest commandment of God in the Old Testament. Matthew 23 37, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The first commandment was vertical. It had to do with a person's relationship with God. you got to get that relationship right first. That's number one. Get your relationship with God going in the right way. And Jesus came to make that happen. I mean, that's why he went to the cross why he bore our sins as our substitute. That's why we can be forgiven and why we can even have a relationship with God the Father. Because Jesus, God the Son, became that bridge, the, the intermediary, the means by which we could even know or experience the grace of God. So the first command was vertical. The second command was horizontal. It had to do with our new relationship with other people. This new command didn't cancel out the old one. No, it was actually built layered onto the old one. First you get your relationship squared away with God through faith in Christ. And then as a consequence, you find new relationships with others who are part of God, a Christ's team, vertically connected to God through Christ, horizontally connected to others through Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower. And it's not one or the other, it's both. Both are essential commands by Jesus to those who would claim to be his followers. Love God, love others in his body, the church. And then by extension, show that love to the world so that they might see invisible and tangible ways the kind of love God has for them. Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, that's the church. Those two loves, love for God, and love for the people of God. They are like the, the double helix in our DNA. They work together. They are inseparable. And so it's really impossible to say that you love God and then don't have any commitment to the local church. Because Jesus wells both of those things together. I've used this quote from John Stott before, but for me it sums it up so well. It's from his book, The Cross of Christ. John Stott writes that, the very purpose of Christ's self-giving on the cross was not to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate their loneliness, but to create a new community whose members would belong to him, love and serve one another, and eagerly serve the world. The community of Christ would be nothing less than a renewed 
and reunited humanity of which he would be the head. It would incorporate Jews and Gentiles on equal terms. In fact, it would include representatives from every nation. Christ died in abject loneliness, rejected by his own nation, deserted by his own followers, but lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. And from the day of Pentecost onwards, it has been clear that conversion to Christ also means conversion to the community of Christ. As people turn from themselves to him, from this corrupt generation, to an alternative society, which he is gathering around himself. These two transfers of personal allegiance and social membership cannot be separated. A commitment to Christ, a commitment to his body, the church. They cannot be separated. These words from Jesus point out that there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. The call to community is equally as important as the call to one's individual salvation. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor executed by Adolf Hitler, wrote in his book, Life Together, without community, there really is no Christianity. The problem is, we don't do this very well. We don't do this love one another stuff very well. And I think Jesus knew this was going to be tough for us because there was a big if in that new commandment. He says, if you love one another. We are not perfect people. We are still all sinners in need of God's grace. We have weak spots. We are selfish. We are a work in progress. Remember the bumper sticker I mentioned last week, be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. So we've got to figure this stuff out. And sometimes it is messy. If you're looking for perfection or for perfect people, you won't find it in the church. And you will always be disappointed. The purpose of the church is to create a community of people who love and serve Jesus Christ together and who struggle, who struggle to try and live out the kind of loving relationships that Jesus desires for us all. The church should, should be a bold experiment in learning how to love one another, a learning laboratory of how to help sinful and, and broken people experience restoration and wholeness, but we don't do it very well. There are over 50 verses in the New Testament to describe how this love one another stuff is supposed to work itself out in practical ways and, and how we treat each other. Here are a few of those verses. Accept one another. Serve one another. Do not complain against one another. Do not lie to one another. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Be subject to one another. Do not speak against one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Seek after what is good for one another. Live in peace with one another. Teach and admonish one another. Confess your sins to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be devoted to one another. Do you get a sense of the dynamic quality of relationship that is Christ's vision for his church? The level of caring, the level of honesty, the level of commitment? Commitment. That's what scares people about true Christian community. Because for any of this to happen, it means going to levels of vulnerability and accountability with other people that most of us resist. We resist, even though we may want it, but it just sounds too scary. I mean, confess your sins to one another, not to a priest or pastor, but 
but to your peers? It sounds like too much. But did you know that this biblical principle of peer-to-peer confession was what the founders of AA built into their recovery program? Honest, open, confidential confession with one's peers. It is the only way real change ever happens, not just for alcoholics, but for everyone. God works through relationships, and it can't happen in a large group setting. It's got to be face-to-face in smaller circles, and that's why being in small groups is so important. You, you can't get to this level of relationship by just attending a worship service. You know, I have been in some kind of a Christian small group since I was 16 years old. I'm still in a small group with other pastors. It's so vital because that's how faith grows, not in large groups, but when you can be face-to-face with a few people, gather around Scripture, but with people with whom you can be honest about your life. And you give them permission to ask you the hard questions, the, the questions that get below the surface. And you make the commitment to be there for the others in your group. Accountable community. That's what Jesus wants for his team. That's what makes the game fun. The relationships. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as is the habit of some but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It takes a team to be a healthy Christian. The church is a group of imperfect people seeking Christ together, imperfect people serving Christ together, imperfect people holding each other accountable to be the kind of people we say we want to be in Christ. That's one of our core values. And the good news is, is that Jesus is still recruiting people to join his team. There's no limit to the number of people he can have on his roster. And contrary to popular opinion, the church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for one more. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this call to community. Even though it may actually be the hardest thing for us in our Western individualized mindset to commit to. So hard for us to give up control, so hard for us to open up and be vulnerable and yet get to that point where true community can actually happen. Lord, help us to build these small circles of trust within our church community to be the kind of place that people would look and they would see the caring and the love, the compassion And also the challenge that we give to one another, that we would be a one-anothering kind of place and so fulfill your vision for your disciples. Lord, teach us how to love one another. In your name we pray, amen.